Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. I feel so privileged to, to have had David Shom on the show. If you don't know, in 1982, David wrote a paper. He wrote many papers, but in 1982, he wrote a dissertation called Computer Systems Established, Maintained and Trusted by Mutually Suspicious Groups. And if this sounds familiar, basically when Satoshi had written the white paper, this dissertation from 1982 proposed every single element of the blockchain found in Bitcoin except for proof of work. And we went into how did it work. We went into how David's early talks and early papers are the technical and cultural roots of the early cypherpunk movement. You could say that David was one of the early founders of modern day cypherpunk and also cryptography. We talked about what did cryptography look like in the 1980s, going from HUD-8, World War II, Alan Turing, jumping then to David, to his generation, because that was that same generation. And then now we have Bitcoin. I didn't realize that we can go from Turing and the invention of modern day cryptography to Bitcoin in just one or two hops. We talked about how you can actually solve voting when it comes to blockchain technology. We talked about his new crypto that is expanding on top of Bitcoin. Trust me, you want to hear David out because he is one of the inventors of digital currency. He launched eCash and DigiCash in the 90s. And I don't want to ruin the rest of the episode for you. At the end of some of his talks, after I asked questions, I just I had to pause because unpacking some of the things he said was just unbelievable. Give some love to the sponsors. I am Charlie Shrem, and I'll talk to you guys just in a moment. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Bitpanda, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear more about them later on on this episode. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them, and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today on the show, I have David Shom. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, it's great to be here with you. Thanks. Your your story goes back. I feel like I've truly arrived now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your story goes back, as far as I can tell, 1979, when you started um, writing about um, you know being able to split keys, and then there was a fam- your famous dissertation in 1982 that. Um, was you know the the cultural but also technical basis of Bitcoin as we know it today and all of blockchain technology. I feel like I can't do it justice if I introduce you. Do you mind introducing yourself and talk about a little about who you are, and then I could jump right into the questions and topics that I wanted to talk about. One really defining thing about me, I think, also happened in 1982. I was standing on the stage in front of a conference of cryptographers, all 70% of the people doing research in cryptography appeared there in Santa Barbara. And I welcomed everyone as the organizer and general chairman. And I told them that as a consequence of paying their registration fee, which in those days was pretty modest, you know, they would be now members of a new thing called the International Association for Cryptologic Research. And it would be holding its second conference in Italy. And this fellow would be the chairman and so on. And you could see all the people in the front row turn green because the National Security Agency had been threatening the the head of it, uh, the IEEE and and ACM and the Computer Society and so forth, to uh, uh, if they were to even have a session on cryptography, he would throw the whole, you know, weight of the federal government uh, at them. This was in 1982? Yeah. But I don't understand, like just 30 years before cryptography basically saved World War, I mean, like saved the allies, well, right? Well, they realized how important the stuff was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they just wanted to put, they, there was very little public research in it. You know, it was mostly all kind of classified and they had this sort of foreign classified notion, you know, like they were trying to apply with secrecy orders they'd put on people and 
and stuff. And so I just, I just secretly organized that conference without using the phone and set up that organization and everything. And, and kind of, uh, you know, it was over once there was an international association. So they, cause the United Nations, you know, protects international scientific organizations and, and, uh, so I feel like I really put myself online to set cryptography free. So that, and the, <laughs> you know, nowadays I realize how, how crazy dangerous that was. From yeah. <laughs> that time I just did it. You know, I was like, I don't care. I'm what a crazy it. jump in generational gap you have, like, uh, you know, Alan Turing and, and the whole, you know, uh, HUD 8. And then you have, like, just 30 years later, you're on stage talking about cryptography. This is like... Pre-internet, pre-computers, I mean, like the, the basics of the internet, but it was pre-everything. I wasn't even born yet. And and then here I am talking to you um, about Bitcoin, and it's just like an unbelievable thing. I'm a little bit, um, <laughs> I don't know how I feel right now. This is just an yeah. unbelievable <laughs> thing. It's kind of strange, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but back in those days, in the, in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, I recognized the importance that information technology would have for the future of civilization. But why? That was my first question. Like, why? To you, at least, in in, in the late 70s, when other people were thinking about other things. <laughs> well, you know, if, if a big, if, if you have a little bit of a technical uh, or power-based perspective on the world, you realize that the sort of, the control mechanism for society is an important thing. And if it, you know, if it were to get in the wrong hands and artificial intelligence and, you know, information technology were to, to be used to sort of control society, it would kind of be over, you know, sort of protests would be futile, right? I mean, it, it's, and that's sort of what, the way I've, I see it playing out right now. You know, there's no... I mean, you see that... Uh, Oh yeah, I mean, like look at you know most of the pro the dissent that you see around the world ends up in the leaders of those you know people think oh great I'll use my, my, my handy app and then they're you know they're targeted later so it, it it you know and then look at you know the what's happening to uh, democracy uh, globally I mean confidence in it is diminished but it's just below fifty percent in almost all countries now. But it's it's also the foundations of it are being rocked by basically being able to spy on people so uh, you know uh, in depth um, and, and manipulate that them through that information. So it's you know if you want to have like democracy, I mean you may not you may or may not like government, but you know it's pretty obvious some governments are more likable than others. I think and the the ones where you have the, you know, something like democracy is a lot better than ones where it's controlled by a small group of people or maybe even just by machines. I and mean, that's not what you want. I completely agree. And it's almost a scary so thing to think about. You can't just be, yeah, too casual with your information. Uh, people need a protected sphere in order where they can uh, communicate. And I would argue also pay and receive payments. Uh, in which to like deliberate and form their uh, political views and analysis. You've got to be able to pay for information or be paid like a journalist to create for good information, quality information. You've got to be able to discuss with your friends and family without fear that someone is, you know, listening in or going to, you know, hold this against you, right? Otherwise, you cannot be a, a a citizen in democracy, you cannot. Uh, you can't be a human in the world. I mean, without privacy, no, yeah. You, I mean, that, that's you have also no freedom. That. But then, yeah. But then, you're if you can't be a citizen in democracy, then you know some people may just take away your ability to be a human in the world too. So you you really need to think of it as an offensive thing. When I was in in uh, in jail a few years ago, um, when I was there, um, I one day I was in the bathroom and. Well, I was in the bathroom a few times a day, but one day um, the guards came in and they removed all the doors to all the bathrooms. And I said, hmm. and I, I said, what the hell? How am I supposed to use the restroom without a door? They said, you don't have a right to privacy here. You don't have a right to privacy. You don't have any rights here. And they took the doors away. 
and we all have to use the bathrooms looking at each other. But it's a very basic, the right to privacy is a very, very, it's one of the most important human rights. You were talking, you've been talking about it for, for over 40 years. Um, yeah. Is Bitcoin the culmination of all this work or is it a constant? Okay, so let me take a step back. A lot of people. No, I think big, Bitcoin is a, is a pivotal uh, technology and it, it is a sea change. It's not the whole story. Because you don't have I love this answer. Because <laughs> okay. you don't have but, what you know. It's a, there's another thing you have to add in to a sort of decentralized uh, network like Bitcoin is a way to to actually allow it to enforce a kind of meaningful privacy, which you know I would I would say is a, what I call like metadata shredding. In other words, you, you, it's not enough just to encrypt and you have to hide from those observing the network or participating in who's communicating with who and when, the metadata. So that's, that's the social graph. That's uh, really essential. And so if you have a good distributed consensus algorithm, then you can sort of use it to unpredictably, randomly, but irrefutably choose like subsets of nodes and run your mess all messages through that subset of nodes where each node permutes, randomizes the order of the messages, re-encrypts them, sends it on to the next node. So if you if you if you change that set of nodes randomly like every second, uh, and you have about say 10, eight, 10 nodes uh, in one of those subsets, then you can allow people to communicate uh, without anyone being able to know who's talking to who and when. And that's that's the missing ingredient. And it, it, it I agree. Pri pri privacy needs to be better. I just want I just wanted to interject that it was actually when I was interviewing people at the crypto conference in Santa Barbara, it was like the 25th anniversary on uh, where just a couple months after the Snowden revelations. And, you know, most of the world's top cryptographers are there. And I know a lot of these people, right? And I was just spending a couple of days just talking to people about what they thought about Snowden. And I was shocked that that, that there was very little um, outrage and concern. And uh, so I decided to come back into the field and really find a way to protect this metadata, which is what you know, Snowden revealed the full take that the government was up to, and uh, um, that took some real effort. But I found a way to speed up my like original data mixing stuff from '79 to by a factor of like several thousand. And no one is, you know, there's five thousand articles that reference my original article. I'm told, but. No one found a way to speed it up at all. So I found a way to speed up like a factor of 4,000. So that um, this allowed is for Elixir, it to correct? be used for, 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 for chat. Yes, excuse me? This is for Elixir, your new project. That is Elixir. That's right. Yeah, well, Elixir's sort of part of my new project. Right? So I have Elixir and then we have Praxis, which is the quantum secure consensus algorithm that's uh, together with Pr Elixir is now we call the XX network. So you, you need a, a secure consensus to choose which nodes are going to be used in which, uh, for which second, you know, because they have to handle all these messages like in batches in order to kind of create what they call a large anonymity set. You know, yeah, so you can't, yeah, yeah. Your, your, work, your work was the technical roots of the whole cypherpunk movement, um, especially over, you know, for... Well, since the movement's beginning, um, and a lot of people involved in early movement with you um, have joined the crypto space, um, whether it be early on or now. And, and you know, I'm, I reference people like Nick Zabo and, and Adam Back and um, and Bram Cohen, for example, and Amin Gunsir. These are people that I've recorded with and have on the show. And it seems like they either go one of two directions. So you have, you know, like the Adam Back and the Nick Sabo and, and others that start companies within Bitcoin. And then you have those mm -hmm. like Bram Cohen, you know, the founder of BitTorrent and everything who, um, mm -hmm. and, and Amin Gunsir who, who did Karma way before Bitcoin, uh, theorizing on cryptocurrency say, no, like what you said, Bitcoin is a such a pivotal sea change, but 
it's not the end all and we need to continue growing because a lot of people think that Bitcoin and, you know, myself included, that we should should build on Bitcoin. That's that's my opinion. So my question for you is, um, you know, to continue my statement, a lot of um, the ones that I speak to believe that if if you build in privacy and anonymity into the baked into the blockchain, the the fight and the work to grow your blockchain at mass adoption will be much more difficult. Whereas if you build like Bitcoin now and you add these privacy um, systems into it later, um, that would be a lot better. For example, you look at like Monero, Monero can't even get listed on exchanges and they're getting taken down. Um, and then the founder of Monero has to like take a step back. Do you think that you're like, fighting, you're going to have to fight an uphill battle, or should we all just jump into Bitcoin and work on that? I think that the world is itself in a rather critical situation at the moment because of this erosion of confidence in democracy that has uh, clearly sort of been precipitated just in the last few years. And, and I think it's really time to do something about that. And so, you know, I've had a pretty full life. And I, you know, I was willing to wish my life apparently to save cryptography. You've had you such know, an when amazing I was a life. graduate student. So, you know, I, I'm going for this because you know, I, I believe that the metadata shredding is, is, is essential and you can't really get the network incentivized properly without, you know, tying into some kind of cryptocurrency. So uh, I agree with you that it's, it's, you know, the sort of a two-step process is the most effective way. And I think that the sort of traceable currency Bitcoin stuff has, you know, really, you know, rocked the planet. And, 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 and now it's enabling us to do this necessary second step, which is to sort of give some real privacy in, in, in communication. Uh, that's, uh, I, I think, the, you know, increasingly the whole game. You know, you might think, well, I'm, you know, my currency is protected, but it, it's not really protected unless there's some, you know, nation states don't turn against it, right? So you, you have to kind of do your civic duty to kind of protect the balance of power globally in the nation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so from what I understand with, with, um, with this new project, um, how, how it does privacy, um, using, uh, a denominated coin structure. And, and from what I understand it, it breaks payments into, uh, smaller amounts and then associates them with other payments of similar amounts or non-similar amounts. And so all transactions that are happening in real time are essentially being all mixed with each other on, you know, on the protocol level? Well, yeah. So, you know, one of the things I did in 1982, and I guess I did a bunch of things, but is I, I, I presented a paper at that first cryptography conference that I, for the International Association for Cryptologic Research, and it was privacy protected payments. And it was based on this new kind of digital signature that I proposed, a blind signature. And so in the 90s, I was running the, you know, arguably the most productive uh, cryptography group globally uh, in terms of number of publications. And, you know, it had, most people in the field came through as visitors. We had summer schools. It was a quite, you know, quite a big uh, thing from undergraduates all the way to, you know, postdocs and uh, uh, professors on sabbatical. And um, so um, we, you know, we're pro I was approached by the Dutch government. They said, we want to do this uh, pay-for-road uh, pricing uh, by these transponders in the vehicles with smart cards in them, and we need privacy because otherwise people won't use it. And I said, oh, God, I know how to do that. I can use these blind signatures that I invented in the 80s. So they uh, wanted us to do it. So I got a bunch of uh, college students who I knew to, like, in 10 days, build a prototype of it and demonstrate it to this like really suspicious consultancy company that actually wanted the contract to do this in their own, you know, privacy invading way. And we proved that we could do it. And so the government said, okay, you guys can build it. And so that's when I started DigiCash uh, for that, to build that, uh, not the radio frequency part, that was by a company called Amtech that we partnered with. But uh, 
then after a few years, I moved over to run the company, which is kind of like an incubator uh, uh, campus that was next adjacent to the Institute, Scientific Institute where I was located. And then, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the web really started to emerge. So there was this first worldwide web conference and they invited me to be the first of two keynote speakers there in, in, at CERN. And the, the, those conferences, conferences still go on, right? So uh, I, I made, I used that opportunity to make an e-cash payment from Geneva to Amsterdam. And that was the first, arguably, I'm told, first payment over the internet, actually. But it was using these, the blind signature process that protects the privacy of the payer, but allows the payer to see and prove later who they paid. So it's a how, how did it work, though? Privacy. How did yeah, it so, work? Well, so basically, then we built it, and um, you know, we we did an airdrop uh, to anyone who would build a, a storefront that would accept it. So we have a bunch. You can look at my go to charm.com and look at the eCash page. You can see there's bunches of uh, shops set up, and you could buy stuff. And we gave them each 100 of these cyberbugs, and then Deutsche Bank decided to issue it in in Deutschmarks and. Then we had Advance Bank in Australia and Australian dollars and other, you know, we had U.S. dollars. This was so in the 80s so or 90s? This was in the mid-90s. Oh, my God. This is crazy. Um, yeah. No one knows about yeah. this. Well, go well to I mean, like, people do know, but it, so, uh, I meant to so, say, uh, like, current crypto folk don't know. That's why I have this show. But um, from what yeah, I understand, so that, the only thing. to answer your question, that system used denominated coins. Because that's the way the blind signature payments work. So How just did it like work without proof of work, though? Physical metal coins, yeah. You have a set of denominations. And so uh. to make it more efficient, since it's computer-based, we use binary denominations. Instead of one cent, five, 25, 50, you know, a dollar, we use like one uh, binary, you know, so one cent, two cent, four cent, eight, 16, 32, like that. Because the person never really sees the coins, right? It's in your wallet. And that way with a set of like 10 coins, denominations, if you have at least one coin of each denomination, you can just make a payment for an arbitrary amount up to like 500 bucks or something like that, an exact cent. So it's, um, or whatever it is. So it's, uh, um, you know, pretty convenient way to do it. It's quite different from the way, let's say Bitcoin works uh, and all the other cryptocurrencies out there, as far as I know, which is that it's more of a, you know, distributed ledger thing where you move, it's like a check, you move a certain amount of money from this uh, wallet ID to that wallet ID. This is th what I built and proposed in the early 80s was what I called a digital bearer instrument. So it was a number that is worth money. And actually, after I did that keynote in Geneva, I mean, I just sat on the patio at like CERN, you know, they have this grungy kind of cafeteria because it's open 24 hours a day yeah. for the scientists there. And I, I typed it at like a two paragraph press release and I emailed it to my office. The next thing you know, the, it was in the New York Times, well, it was all over the planet. Uh, people were all excited about the idea that a number could be worth money. And so that was more the emphasis. Um, it was not a distributed system. It was centralized but it was privacy protecting and it was quite secure and you know in my defense was the ledger I would like encrypted say, the way eCash works is that just like with fiat currency the issuer has a secret key a private key that lets them sign all the money so there was no real control over the extent of of issue we when we did the airdrop, we said we're only going to issue a million cyber bucks. But the the other ones were, you know, just uh, a stable coin, basically. Deutsche Bank, which was the largest bank in the world at that time, I believe, uh, they were issuing Deutschmarks. You know, so they were, it was their currency. They they had the, the keys and they could issue as many of them they wanted, but they were convertible into Deutschmarks in, in any of their, you know, checking accounts, any of their demand deposit accounts. So, uh the, but but so in my dissertation at Berkeley, which you mentioned, there, and there's an article which you can find on my website if you look at the publication, you can see my dissertation. There's an article that was appeared recently that asserted that pretty much all the elements of a distributed ledger and blockchain were in my thesis, uh, actually a pseudo, as a specification language uh, code, because uh, I, I did propose this 
what I called computer systems established, maintained trust by mutually suspicious groups. So I had the ideas how to do a blockchain. It was a blockchain uh, way back then, but you know, people sometimes forget that in the mid '90s we didn't have such uh, amount of computers out there, and the, the cost wasn't low enough, and everything that you could just think of doing something like Bitcoin. In my in my view. So we were happy that we could barely get it to work, uh, but you know the, the 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 users would be running you know really clunky old you know three eighty six computers right. So you know you gave me a there's a th- something it took them a couple minutes to do the cryptography. It wasn't like yeah you know <laughs> it wasn't like today where oh yeah we'll just have you know a million servers. Well, so let me ask you a question. In those days when there <laughs> when there were not a lot of computers and there were not a lot of servers and mainframes and it was largely in universities and eventually, eventually people's homes and a personal computer came to fruition. You're very familiar with like, you know, the, there was the whole scaling big debate with do we scale Bitcoin on chain or do we, you know, scale off yes, chain? And then the lightning but, stuff. And yeah, but wait here. So hear me out with the question. So the so the, so I'm not as technically uh, uh, proficient and most people are not. So when it came to that debate, we weren't a lot, most 99% of people were not informed. Therefore, the people that were could kind of create their own narratives. And we saw that happen. My question to you is in, in the early days of the internet, in the early days, I'm talking about the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s, were similar debates happening over the future of the internet when it comes to like the ability for 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 people like you and I to run computers at home. Therefore, you have a much more distributed internet over saying, hey, we just rather have universities and corporations run computers. Were those debates happening? You know, that was not really considered a key issue uh, all the time. So don't forget, I mean, when the, I mean, just generically, I could comment about, you know, the evolution of information technology over this period. I mean, when the IBM PC came out, you know, it was considered extremely liberating for people in large organizations because they didn't have to rely on the uh, data processing department. You know, they could have their own little spreadsheets and stuff at, in their in their department under their own control. And, uh, you know, and I think that hobbyists picked up on the, you know, how neat it would be to have your own computer. But the idea of really... Uh, participating in a distributed global system as one of, you know, a million servers, I don't, I, I don't recall that really being um, an issue that, that, you know, people were, were concerned about, actually. Um, so it's like a new possibility that was really raised with Bitcoin. And, you know, you have to have a way to incentivize people to do it and, and, uh, you have to have the you know the computing power to do it, and and so this is a whole new world. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them, and we have been for a few months now. They love me, and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt, actually. It helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works. Because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Where were you when you found out about Bitcoin? Where were you when you read Satoshi's paper? I mean, like, I I just want to know what your like brain (laughs) was doing when you read this. Did you say, I know this guy or, oh, like I invented this. Like, what was going through your head when you, because this was like 30 years of your work at this point. 
It's a culmination of everything. And you referenced, and basically, the Satoshi's white paper, and, and, and I've done the research. I've read your dissertations. Well, from what I could understand, I've read the white paper for the past 10 years all the time. From what I understand, again, I'm not as technically proficient as 99, you know, as, as most people are. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm able to do this show. But it seems like your your, your dissertation proposed, like, so many elements of the blockchain found in Bitcoin, except for proof of work. So when you had read yeah. that and you got to proof of work, did you be, or there was like a light bulb moment in your head? Well, I was, you see, at the crypto conference, you know, I founded the International Association. So we had three conferences now a year. And so the, the main one is, well, one of the three main ones is still in Santa Barbara. So I was there and I believe it was, uh, 94, when um, uh, one of my co-authors, Monina Orr, uh, was one of the, 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 with Cynthia Dwork, uh, I think Cynthia presented the paper, and I was there in the, in the room when they presented the proof-of-work paper, uh, and, from, and they said, well, the use of it would be for, uh, you know, one use would be for preventing spam, and um, I, I don't think people in the blockchain space really always recognize that work as the original proof of work work, but it, it, that's the thing. So I, I already knew about proof of work, uh, you know, and I, since it was, they were at IBM, I suspected they were working on all kinds of other uses for it. So that's why I didn't really think about it much myself, which is probably, you know, unfortunate. Uh, but um, uh, the, yeah, so, I mean, think of the, the whole the way I look at it, I was kind of there in spirit during this whole cypherpunk thing. And, you know, while I wasn't always, you know, physically present and I wasn't regarded as one of the, you know, most active members or something, like you said, I, the, the people were uh, inspired by, you know, my, the kind of mechanisms that I proposed and, and the underlying, you know, uh, new model of how people could protect their own interests in cyberspace. And uh, uh, so it didn't really come as a big surprise to me. Um, so, but, uh, you know, but, I mean, the, uh, but the foresight must have been insane because these were the days when people, when you had to convince people that the inter that these were the days when, when, when mainstream media would go on, you know, would, would say things like who the hell would read a book on the internet? Like, I, you know, you saw those old 60 minute clips from the 80s and 90s and everything where they where they were making fun of the Internet. Who would send a message over the yeah. Internet? You know, but right. here you yeah. are not saying that you're saying, yes, the Internet's going to be a thing. We're all going to be using it. It's going to be like such a the most important invention the world will ever have seen. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the next level. Like we need yeah. to do payments on the Internet. Like it's just I guess. Well, that's right. I mean, the real case, not that. You know, deep. I mean, it's a question of okay. So there is but information is. technology is gonna is gonna rule the planet. The question is, who's gonna control it? Is it gonna be controlled enough by individuals so that they can maintain control over society, or is it gonna be controlled by some small group? And that's you know. So what? It's obviously cheaper to control it by a small group, and they can get access to a lot of capital, and you know, keep and take a leadership like you've seen with Facebook and Google and so on. Right. So that's like a first wave. And then hopefully people will be alerted to how dangerous and shocking this is in time to kind of throw their weight behind a, a different approach where they will be empowered to kind of, you know, dictate the, the, how this technology is, is used with respect to them. So it, it, yeah, it, it it's, that's sort of parallel to what you were saying earlier. You know, first do the money thing and then, yeah. then do the, the real privacy thing. Yeah, it's it's unfortunately, you know, you have this kind of like, you know, people don't really get worried until, I don't know, they see the truck coming straight at them, you know. So um I I okay, I wanna I wanna continue to ask you more questions because um I'm learning so much here. Um one of the killer apps that at least in, in the circles that I was in in the early Bitcoin days was talking about um, 
voting. You know, everyone's like, yeah, blockchain's going to solve voting. The, the biggest mm. issue is not uh, uh, corrupt totalitarian regimes. The issue is that when it comes time for the people that living in those places to vote, um, voting is rigged and voting is a scam. And even in, yeah. in, in the most first world countries like America, voting is a sham. Um, I still have not seen and I still don't understand how blockchain technology can solve those problems. But you were writing about this and you were solving this in 94. Can you explain to me how you theorized? Uh, sorry, in 1981, you came up with an end-to-end. Well, yeah, so, yeah, that's right. Please tell so, me. Oh, God. Well, it's okay. So let me try to give you a, a compressed version of this. So <laughs> in that privacy, in the uh, Untraceable Electronic Mail Return Addresses and Digital Pseudonyms paper, which had all those references I mentioned that, that talked about introduced metadata shredding, the example that was given was voting. And I showed in a couple paragraphs how you could use these mechanisms also to, to do elections. And in fact, I, you know, the reason I'd started working on metadata shredding, because I thought, well, privacy is going to be important going forward. So, you know, like a scientist do, they like try to figure out a little toy example that you can, you know, test out your ideas on and see, you know, get going on it. So that's what I started with was voting because like, you know, five-year-olds understand voting, right? So I, uh, that was sort of the genesis of all this uh, mixing stuff, the, the, the metadata shredding. But um, then uh, when, so, so my, that paper had the first you know, computers voting, it's, you could say, because the keys in the computers were what were used to secure the election. So it wasn't really about an in-person human voting thing. It was, you have people on a network could vote if they trusted their own computers. Um, that's what I showed back in 81, like as you said. Then, um, you know, basically what happened when the, uh, the election in 2000 in the U.S. kind of melted down, I naively came into this, you know, election security issue again and, and uh, tried to create like a scientific organization there to really figure out how to do this best. And I organized, uh, we had a series of conferences and we pu published a number of books and, uh, you know, uh, and um, uh, this IVOS organization was created and so forth. So, um it, so the sort of culmination of that was we had like a student voting competition and then the uh, city of Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is a like a, it's, you could think of it as a suburb of the Washington, D.C. area, but it is an incorporated city uh, and, you know, sort of half policy wonks and half like normal people that live, that live there. It, and they invited us to run their municipal election that, you know, for mayor and, you know, the city council and the, so they have ballot questions as well, uh, in uh, 2009. And then, um, uh, we did it. And then again in 2011, uh, so like, okay, I funded this, but it was done using this breakthrough technology, which was, you know, the, uh, improvement on the thing that we used to win the student voting competition, which is basically a way to, allow you to vote in, you can see it on my website, but you, 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 you use a, you vote in person in the booth, you mark the ballot with a, with a highlighter, but you see a, co a code is developed, which is hidden in the, in the little oval, but you can write that code down and look it up online so that you can see that your vote was really recorded. Oh, okay, cool. As yeah. cast, but you can't show anyone how you voted. This is, you see, voting is a unique kind of security problem in that it's not just you want to keep your vote secret. You're supposed to be unable to sh convince anyone of how you voted. So it's like secrecy enforced against you, the so-called ballot secrecy. So we were able to provide that, but let people see that. And then we could prove mathematically, you know, and there are other people, independently people created software that would check that all the posted numbers really did correspond to the posted outcome. You could verify that only with public information because of a random partial so cool. checking, say, of all these uh encrypted uh, paths that would lead you from those codes to the actual total. Do you think you met and Satoshi? <laughs> it's a real question. I mean, and if you said yes, I not that you think you would know, but um, do you think in your... Well, not to dodge your question, Charlie, but let me, let me just say one more thing about the voting because I okay. think it's also interesting. Then, so we ran to the, and the, the, the voters loved it there and we had we 
published we had surveys. The U.S. government, they I paid for the election technology and I developed the special inks and the voting machines and all this stuff. But the, they, the only thing they were willing to pay for was surveys of the uh, users, the voters, when they came out of the polling place. And, and so every voter was surveyed and then every third voter was asked a random, you know, uh, an open-ended question by a professional interviewer. And uh, the results of all that are published. Voters loved it, even though they didn't understand the final part, you know, they got, they loved it. And so it was, uh, I would consider it a big success, but election officials, you know, cost less to run than, than election officials normally pay for election equipment in the U.S. and stuff like that. So uh, I realized that they weren't really looking for a better way to do it. And so I thought to myself, you know, elections are too important to be left to governments. <laughs> oh my God, that's with such listeners. a great quote. <laughs> so that's what I invented, sample voting. But it took some real effort. But the sample voting, it turns out, is really useful for, for like blockchain governance. I mean, if you, I'm not trying to weigh in on the hard fork, soft fork, you know. It's fine. Debate, but if you want to have distributed governance, uh, you see, one of the big problems of democracy these days is that, you know, it doesn't really scale to the size and complexity of modern societies. You know, so this even representative democracy doesn't. I mean, no people don't normally know their representatives anymore. God, I agree with you don't so have a much. To even read the legislation that they're signing, right? Let alone, you know, really think about yeah. it and, and write it. So what you and, and the same thing with some of these blockchains that are revising their code, you, they hope people will look at it, but you can't. everyone can't look at all the code all the time. Then no one looks at any of the code. So is lack of governance the best governance, you think? Like Bitcoin no, has? No, I'm not saying, I don't want to quote me on this. Like, no, I'm not, I'm asking I wanna, you. I want to say that if you want to have, if you want to incentivize people to help check the code, let's say, of a distributed system, let's just leave it at, at that, then what you, the way to do it is not say, okay, everyone's supposed to look at everything, the way to do it is to randomly select subsets of people without them being able to know who's in which subset and then to um, incentivize them to participate. In, so that you basically, concretely, you say, OK, you thousand people, no one knows who you are. We can prove that we cho chose you unpredictably at random. You are going to vote on whether this update, this particular piece of code should be in you know, in incorporated, um, or and so your vote's really going to count because there's only a thousand people that have been selected in this way, and just like the, the citizens of Tacoma Park, Maryland, you'll be able, your your vote will be publicly verifiable, so you know it'll be counted accurately, and and you're not going to know who the other voters are that have been selected, so no one can like try to influence you. It's very difficult to you know supply you with false information or try to bribe you or whatever. And if you try to sell your vote, it's not going to work. And that was a key breakthrough. So I have what I call decoy ballots and proof of decoy, which is needed to, uh, because otherwise, you know, so the decoy ballots are just a fake ballot that you, that's indistinguishable from a real ballot, but when you, uh, you, you can request it and then sell it to the opposite side of the issue. And so if they, uh, you can basically cause them to waste all their money and drive the price of, of bought votes way down. Uh, and you can benefit from that. You're incentivized to do it. So what you need to, so you need, you need to prevent vote selling. And what, and the other thing is you need to incentivize voters to vote. And I think that a really interesting way to do that is by kind of, you know, offering them Bitcoin or even a lottery kind of a thing. So when you do vote, then you're eligible to receive some, probabilistically, say, some significant reward, and that would incentivize people across a wider economic spectrum. But of course, that has to be independent of the way you vote. And so I've shown a mechanism for doing that that, interestingly, works with blind signatures back to the original uh, elect electronic money. So if, if you, it, I mean, it worked with Bitcoin, but, but you have to use blind signatures to prove that you are the only one. Uh, you're eligible to get it, but without so unlinking it to your vote. Um, so um, that's kind of my vision for, and that's what you know we're we're trying to to build into the blockchain behind the lecture. The the Praxis blockchain and part of the XX network is a a voting system like this, so that uh, we have uh, 
you know, model governance. I mean, but I hope other people use this stuff too. And, uh, um, you know, uh, I grew up in, really open. I grew up we in, just public, by the way, just, we just open sourced our, um, what's called the seventh estate. So you can see it at seventh estate, seventh dot estate. Uh, it's on, on Git. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's all the, the code for uh, a, what I call a grassroots sample voting. Let's go back to my Satoshi question. So do you think in your in your travels and your in your conferences and your meetings, I mean, in the 40 years of the cypherpunk movement and um, even being passive, sometimes and active, I mean, you've probably run into a member of the Satoshi group or Satoshi himself, unless well, unless Satoshi is an alien. I, I, like I said, I, I just feel like I was kind of present during the whole cypherpunk thing, but as a, you know, not as an active participant, but as a kind of inspiration. And, and uh, I, you know, I've known many of the people and many of the people that are not even publicly associated with this over, you know, from the early days. So, uh, yeah, that's about as much as I'd, I'd, I'd say about that. Your contributions, not just when it comes to cryptography and mathematics, but um, I was reading something cool, not related to crypto, but I think the listeners mm -hmm. would love it. But uh, can you explain the the distance bounding protocol? Uh, I, I was having a little <laughs> bit. No, because it's cool. I like physics. I like cool shit like this. I just don't. Un I don't understand it. Well, yeah. So want to prove that you are like giving a Bitcoin uh, to someone at the you know on the other side of a retail you know at the cash register there at the counter, uh, and that it's really your Bitcoin. It's not like someone paying you from home who didn't come in, so you're really entitled to the discount, let's say, or whatever it is that's really yours that you're paying them. Then you need to prove that you know that secret locally. And because of the speed of light limitation on communication, what you do is you kind of break down the proof that you have this secret into little one-bit questions, like, is the first bit yes or no kind of like things, you know? And those you can answer really, really fast. So so that there's no way the secret isn't, you know, is further than like two feet away from from your smartphone. Wow. Does it work? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this, yeah, it, it, it works. It's, it's a, and there's a bunch of surprising things you can do with cryptography. You know, it can also, let's say you have a secret and, and I have a secret and we want to, you know, I want to show mine to you and you want to show yours to me. I wish but, I knew you like... A bunch of years ago, because um, when I was in jail, I was trying to develop, like I was trying to figure out a way to have encrypted communication with someone on the outside, but I, <laughs> I, I wasn't able to figure it out. There was one like uh, encryption algo that was based on uh, a deck of cards. I think it was uh, Gibson Research put it out a long time ago. You, I know you're familiar, but um, it, <laughs> sitting there and like decrypting letter by letter, but it didn't work. It was too slow, but it was <laughs> yeah. a fun experiment. But you and I could have had cool communications during the, because I had to do everything, you know, by hand or whatever. Yeah, so there's there's, there's cool stuff. I mean, the, the, there's a, one of the interesting, fun protocols that you could do is, you know, like two people can reveal uh, that, that they have a mutual interest in like going on a date, say, um, where, but such in such a way that if it isn't mutual, you know, neither party learns that the other party was interested, right? You, you don't embarrass yourself by saying, hey, I'd like to go on a date with you if the other party's not interested. But if you're both interested, then you both find out. So that is another example protocol. And there's, it turns out a guy in my group uh, had came up with a way to do that with a deck of cards that's uh, 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 pretty simple. But that's a, uh, you know, surprising thing you can do. Uh, and, and actually, in our communication network, we have that as a kind of basis for our user discovery. So we have a strong version of user discovery where uh, you can, you know, establish a communi encrypted communication with someone, but only if they are willing to do it and you are willing to do it. So you can't kind of, uh, you know, spam people. It's uh, so. Anyways, um, yeah, there's there's a, uh, you know, bunches of you know, and actually. Like the biggest academic scientific thrill and accomplishment in my cryptography career is what I would regard as being a key participant in proving the cryptographic equivalent of, let's say, 
uh, Maxwell's equations or the uh, church Turing thesis, in effect. So that, that, put simply, if you have a number of people that each can have their own secret and their own computer in, with that secret, and they agree on a common piece of software that they would like to see run with secret inputs from each of them and secret outputs to each of them and public outputs and all that. So it's the most general computer security problem, information security problem there is. It's like a, it simulates a trusted intermediary, a fully trusted, mutually trusted intermediary. You could do that with cryptography. That's a theorem that I helped prove. And then you could do it um, information theoretically if a majority of participants are honest. So you don't even need cryptography, and then you know statistically, and then um, so personally, I also uh, showed that you could sort of combine those, and if you know, the cryptography is broken, then it's still protected by the by the honest majority, and um, so. But this is uh, very powerful result. So it's basically saying cryptography can do anything. Yeah, it can solve any computer security problem, but it doesn't tell you how to build it. It's constructive proof, but it, the constructions are very inefficient. Can so people it, use like cryptography to create better statistical models on things like, for example, coronavirus? Like right now, um, why are we? It's just in, in the age that we're in, mathematics progressed so long in statistical modeling, we still can't know how many cases there are of coronavirus around, you know, COD nineteen or whatever. Um, can something like this help us? Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's really. It's a nice it just question. baffles me and that I, sometimes I sure there's probably a bunch of people that aren't revealing everything they're doing, and like you know the way we did the, the elections, you can sort of reveal some aspects of what you're doing, and you can kind of prove that it, you're not making it up without revealing the secrets behind it that you know maybe miscreants or someone could misuse, or you 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 know you don't, you're not able to release or. or or what have you. So I think that's a, that's a great, uh, you're right though, but there's the the absence of data. You, you, you can't, you know, do, do this accurately. Like, you know, the, the first, the first time, um, the first time, like as children, you know, we're in school and we get into algebra and when you move on from like the multiplication tables, you get into the first X plus one and you like, what's X or what's N, you know, and um, X plus one equals two. And that's the first time when, when in the introduction of, uh, of, of mathematics as uh, to young school children, um, that concept of like, you know, at first you go from one plus one equals two, and then it's X plus one equals two. So X represents data that we don't have, or you have to figure it out later on um yeah. kids love secrets they do no, that's I, my po- yeah it's crazy I, I, most i laugh a lot of kids do like little secret code things and you know the it's uh it the, you know the power of secrecy was something that very much impressed me in my uh childhood and that's probably going back to one of your earlier questions you know part of what set me on the course of trying to see if you could leverage these secrets to protect the interests of individuals in society. Where did you, I don't I should have asked this early on, but um, obviously your dissertations were, you know, culminations of work. When did you start getting interested in cryptography? Was it as a young child? What, was it reading about like, uh, you know, World War II or was it learning about cryptography in the Native Americans? Like what, what grasped it for you? What, what made you excited about this? I know that I was interested in cryptography in high school, and I did try to de- design some simple security systems based on cryptography, but it wasn't my, you know, obsession. And my, so when I was in college, I was really interested in computer science. You know, I'd been teaching computer science when I was in High school, actually, <laughs> it broke it was a whole long story about you know I was sneaking into college and act like I was a college student. Really? Like that. But yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure I graduated from high school, but it doesn't matter. Any event, um, you know, uh, when I was in college, uh, at a certain point, um, I started trying to see how you could use cryptography to provide computer security because I was a computer science major, and that's. Um, where, you know, my academic, say, interest in cryptography got started and it, it, it 
sort of dominated because when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, that's all I was working on, you know, how to uh, use cryptography to make the world a better place. Well, when you were studying uh, computer science and cryptography to make the world a better place, like you were saying, what were people like, what were your professors or your mentors touting as like the future of the personal computer or the future of the internet or the future of computer science, like in the seventies, like what were there, you know, you could read like forward thinking statements about like, what are people think Bitcoin's going to look like in 30 years? What do we think the internet's going to look like in 30 years? What did people say the, that world would look like in the two thousands? And did those things come true? Were they completely wild? Honestly, the faculty that I came into contact with as a student, graduate student and so forth, uh, did not really Theorize. have a vision that, that like extended as far as mine. So, uh, you know, I was sort of working on this stuff in spite of kind of the way they looked at things. I mean, you know, as an academic, there's a lot of pressure on you to kind of, you know, publish cool things so that you can get media coverage so that your, your dean will like you, you know, and you'll get grant funding. And it, 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 it's, it's not, this is kind of why when I was at the, at, at the crypto conference, uh, you know, people weren't really all excited about the Snowden thing because they're professors in cryptography, but they're not necessarily doing this to change the world. You, you get kind of swept up in this, I get it. Yeah. you know, academic uh, uh, thing. And there's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a, more than a full-time job. Do you've never th- done that, right? I mean, it's, RP- I'm, I'm not, you know, disparaging academics. It's, it's just the public sometimes thinks of academics as, you know, people who are uh, maybe a little bit... Uh, yeah. Have more opportunity to really pursue... I mean, one of the... But on the other hand, I, I was taken... Why I was just so excited to discover that as a young academic in the field of cryptography, the powers that be, you know, the granting agencies and the, and the deans and, you know, all this stuff, the conferences, they, they, they didn't realize how powerful cryptography really was. So I was free to create these mechanisms that could really, you know, change the world and create a better world. And, and 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 if they'd known really the significance of what I was doing, I have, I always had the feeling they would you know suppress it, but but they didn't. And this was uh, always a you know kind of a thrill for me that Are you people happy? would pay you that to do stuff that probably they, if they knew what you were doing, they wouldn't pay you to do it. But that stuff that you created could you know live way you know extend way beyond your reach. Are you happy with the footprint that you left on the world? Well, I don't think. You've seen anything yet. That's a brilliant response. Space. That's a brilliant response. Wow. I mean, I, everyone's like, pause, like what? <laughs> David, David, thank you so much um, for coming on the show today. I, I, I'm just, you know, racking my brain because um, there's so much of a, of a takeaway here that um, I learned. And, you know, we were talking earlier and you said, do you want to jump on a call? And now I'm happy we didn't because this now it's like all original for me. And if you've noticed, like there were pauses at the end of some of what you said, <laughs> because I'm, I'm just yeah. like trying to grasp it and think about it. But I what I'm what I'm very satisfied. And I'll tell you in the past hour and we need to do this again. We'll do a part two in six months. Um, then in the past hour, I think we were able to break down some of these very, very complicated concepts. Um, and you know, you have some people that are listening to the show right now, driving their children to school in their car or whatever. Well, hopefully I I apologize for my profanity, but, um, I think we were able to like, you know, break some of these things down. And and if I'm able to understand it and I'm usually, I look at myself as like the lowest education level that everyone else is smarter than me. So if I can get it, then everyone else will get it. That's how I kind of look at these things. Um, Mm -hmm. it was really wonderful. So, so really thank you. Oh, well, it was a, it was a blast. And thank you for yeah, your contributions. It was, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for inventing really Bitcoin. It, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I almost got you. Yeah. David, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Hey. Um, how can people follow you and Elixir and pra- how can people follow it? Just go to XX uh, network and uh, xx.network and you can see uh, what's uh, what's going on and um, 
xx.network you love double x's yeah, yeah. we have them in all our in all our names that's uh Wonderful. super great to be here it was really a blast and pleasure and, and thanks thanks so much and like i said at the beginning i feel like i've now i've really arrived hey everyone thanks for listening new episodes of untold stories are released every tuesday and thursday at 7 a.m est on untoldstories.com apple spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Schrem. To continue the conversation, send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.